Welcome to the premier broadcast of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. I'm Dustin Planholt, and here with me in the Alston Carlisle studio in Baltimore, Maryland, is Dr. Olga Heron, contributor. We also welcome our special guest, Pastor Ed Lockmiller. I'd also like to thank Melinda Davis, executive producer at Up To Me Radio, for giving the Life's Tough community an opportunity to share our life stories with our amazing audience. Today's show is about life and purpose. Everyone has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie. The important thing to consider with your own story is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're going to start today's show with an excerpt from my upcoming memoir, Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. First, though, I'd also like to welcome Western Limited as a sponsor of this broadcast. Western is the premier investigation firm for the Western United States. It's the place to call when you need a prompt, thorough, and confidential investigation. Call 866-435-0942 for a consultation. And tell them Life's Tough sent you. Now settle back and let's go to the excerpt. This passage is from my upcoming book, Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. On Monday, October 19, 1987, the stock market crashed. The Dow suffered its largest one-day percentage drop in history. It plunged 508 points, which represented a 22.6% loss in market value. By comparison, the 1929 crash, which also occurred on a Monday in October and ushered in the Great Depression, was a 12.8% loss, the second largest percentage falloff. October 1987 also turned out to be a horrible time on a personal level. Four days before Black Monday, on Thursday, October 15th, Robbie, who was my father, was arrested following a harrowing police chase in and around Temecula. The town of Temecula in Southern California is about a 10-minute drive north of Rainbow, the place where my family lived. As detailed in a previous chapter, Robbie, with me in the front seat, was trying to elude dozens of police in pursuit of him while driving a borrowed truck. When the chase ended, Robbie was taken to a police station for booking as I was transported to a hospital for treatment. My head had banged the dashboard in the truck as we came to a crashing halt. The impact caused me to bite my tongue so hard that I ended up with a severe gash in it. My sister, Tennille, who had been waiting for us at our shack in Rainbow, was soon picked up by the police because the police could not locate our mother. Tennille was taken to Casa de Amparo, a place of refuge for abused and neglected kids. Eventually, when I was released from the hospital, I too went to Casa de Amparo. Tennille and I had entered California's foster care system. Our mother, by that time, was living in Maryland, in a town 2,600 miles away from Rainbow, with her new husband and their baby boy, who had been born three months earlier in July. And now, it's my great pleasure to bring in Pastor Ed Lockmiller. I'm going to let Pastor Ed talk about what he's doing now, shortly, and how he feels about that chapter. The reason I know Pastor Ed 
is because he was the pastor at Rainbow Community Church in Southern California, the little church that was just down the road from where my family lived when I was three and four and five. He kept an eye on Tennille and me. He saw me after the crash. He visited us at various points in our journey through foster care. And he even brought Robbie on occasion to see us. Pastor Ed, I invite you to offer a blessing for this brand new show. And it's with the greatest honor that we could do it together. Well, thanks. It's, it's good to be here. I remember that day. I remember when that happened. Uh, I was counseling at, the, at our house and Robbie gave me a call and uh, was from some apartment. And in that process, there was some lady that was there says, I told you never to come here. And, in that, and I found out later on, he was, he was chopping off his beard and I think he was razoring off his hair and getting dressed in women's clothes so they <laughs> could hide from the police. And he asked me to pick you guys up. Uh, pick, told me where it happened for as far as the truck was and, and all that, and then later on to pick up Tennille. But it was a pretty traumatic day. And, I'm glad you survived it, to be honest with you. But I would like to pray for you in the program. And uh, Lord, I bring before you the, this program that is intended to help people who are going through tough times, those who are going through great trauma and problems within their life. And we would ask, Lord, that you would use Dustin and, and Dr. Olga as they interact with different people in the future. I pray, Lord, that the, that the things that they've gone through would be a blessing to others to help them find you as well as uh, find comfort. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ed. Thank you for that blessing, Pastor Ed. So I just want to open the show to say that this show is an extension of the Life's Tough overall mission. There's a website, resources, and articles, and training, all with a common mission. This mission is to bring a community of people who face life adversities and trials and tribulations so that we can support one another and guide others who are going through these things to rise above them and become whole, purposeful people. So Dustin, can you share some of that mission with us and let us know, what does life tough mean to you? Life's tough. For me, it represents, for myself, childhood trauma, that I've been walking with this life of pain, wondering what was my story? You know, when you're told a story growing up, everything seems so big. And the things I thought I knew, well, boy, was I wrong. When I look at life's tough, I look in reverse. And when you look back in your life, you find empathy. You find the people that had empathy towards you, the Pastor Eds that were there. That it took me using our sponsor, Western Limited. But I was able to locate the records to find a man that was so special to my family. And so to get it to know yourself really is the first acknowledgement and uh, the first true statement of life's tough. You're not going to be able to do it alone. It will take a movement. It will take a village. It will take the collective. It will take everything you've been through, every journey, every moment, every step, every person along your path. Every person, when you look behind you, there was a sign. There was a person standing there that we touch each other, these footprints, these moments, these impacts. And for me, this little boy at four and a half years old, not having a mother, well, Pastor Ed was brought in, I'll help him. That he had a purpose, a purpose that he befriended a family that for many would not be worth befriending. Well, the cost would be too great. Pastor Ed for me represents life's tough, life's tough. You can be tougher, but you can't do it on your own. And that's the mission of lifestuff.com. How do you go from surviving to thriving, no matter what's thrown against you? For me, 
some of the hardest things for me to do are the ones I tell people not to do. And that's life. Forgiveness. One of the things I struggle with most. Well, what about abandonment? What about pain? All of us have experienced these moments in life. All of us walk around wounded, wondering why we do the things we do. When we look at the decisions we make, biological, physiological, social, and the way we adapt. Life's tough is more than me. It is bigger than me. It is about creating torchbearers. It's about bringing experts like Dr. Olga in to help fix people like me, help to give me the strength and encouragement to know I'm not crazy, to help me understand and realize, looking at Pastor Ed, that even when it may not be in my best interest to show an act of kindness, will eventually put somebody like myself at age 35 in a room of people that put their trust, their trust not just in me, but in Life's Tough, the movement. I can definitely speak to that, and I think there is great value in creating this community and in expressing all of our emotions and our experiences when a lot of us have gone through these trials and tribulations and traumatic experiences I think that there are very few people who can say that they haven't been through those kinds of experiences I think that when we share these human emotions and share the fact that we really are all a part of this human experience I think it brings us together brings that strength to all of us and so I want to bring this back to your book and I know that you're in the final editing stages of this powerful story of your own life, of your own life and life experiences. I know that the purp purpose of telling your personal story isn't to shame people or to out them or even out their behavior, but to find not even to find justice for the harm that's been done to you. Can you share what your goal with sharing your story and publishing this book is? It's to find empathy, to find empathy for those to me who've hurt me to those who've loved me, to the people that have crossed my path. When you look at where you are, we complain. I'm not where I want to be. And you follow, you follow your cookbook. Well, most people don't have a cookbook. One of the things we look at at lifestuff.com is how do you become resilient? Well, it starts with recognizing where you're weakest, not where you're strong. This show is not about connecting on our strengths. It's about connecting on our weaknesses, the things that hold us back. For me, the book, was about something bigger. It was about reminding people that even when life has thrown everything it has at you, and it will, that all you have to do is look around a room in Austin Carlisle's studio, and you'll see a room full of faces in Baltimore to say, I'm here. You look around and your friends are there with you and your family, even the adopted family like Pastor Ed. I can definitely speak to that. Whenever I share my experiences, I feel as though my community speaks to more and responds better to whenever I speak to the issues that I've gone through, the weaknesses that I feel. It connects us all because when we talk about our strengths, sometimes we forget that these strengths come out of addressing our weaknesses. And I feel as though people feel very alone when they um, think about their past and their stories and social media and the public faces that we put on can make it seem like everyone else has an ideal life and smooth sailing. And so for people who've gone through loss, trauma, abuse, or neglect, that can add to that feeling of being alone. So when we share these weaknesses, these vulnerabilities, and how we overcome and strengthen them through empathy towards ourselves, that's when we can really create this community. So Dustin, the Life's Tough platform is built around the benefits we experience by sharing our stories and helping each other. And I really like how you express that we didn't get to this point alone. 
we all needed the help of somebody like Pastor Ed. And so if we're able to be those Pastor Eds for others, that's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So can you take a minute to explore with us what that means to you? Yeah, I'm going to throw the question to Pastor Ed. I want to know why the Roper family? What was it about my family that made you show empathy? The uh, Probably the best answer is that Jesus Christ. I mean, he was the one that um, I was trying to share with, with Robbie. And uh, he would, Robbie came to church, Tennille came to, I mean, uh, yeah, Tennille as well as your mom. And the goal was for you to be able to see the care and the love of Jesus Christ and offer him to, to your whole family. So then there was that need. I mean, you guys needed help. So we reached out to you. you know, you were in a very bad situation, so we wanted to help. Pastor Ed, again, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing something that at times might not have been in your best interest. Uh, and I think for those of us listening in, even myself, you look back over your journey. Earlier I was telling him about an almond story. Last week, Thursday, driving down the road, I had just given away two packages of almonds uh, to two separate uh, homeless individuals I saw on the side of the road, and I got a little hungry myself, so I started to eat the almonds. Now, he just done this act of kindness. Well, not that it cost me anything. It was, well, they're hungry, and I got a bag of almonds, so why wouldn't I give them a bag of almonds? And I bit into the almond, and I felt this crack in my tooth. Something didn't feel right. Saturday, I text a good friend of mine. Hey, I got a problem. Something's wrong with my tooth. I go see him on Monday just to get my tooth checked out. And he says, Dustin, you need a root canal. That's life. Even when you do acts of kindness, there is a cost. And so I look at the situation you were put in that you still made a decision that no matter the cost, I will be the first on the scene. That you get this phone call that these two small children, Dustin, age four, Tennille, age six, and you immediately say, I'm in. You knew he had been in a police chase. You knew there had been quite a bit of violence. And yet still, you made a decision. And that, to me, is the ultimate testament of the character of the, of the person. And when you look at the people in your circle, look at the people in your life, in your community, is there an act of kindness that even when it's not to your benefit, it's to the benefit of theirs? That's a community. Villages were built on that same principle. Go back thousands of years, the village protected the village. Even when it wasn't in the person's best interest, they said, well, it is. It's in the best interest of the village. We are all part of this together. That's life's tough. Definitely. That communal perspective is incredibly important. And that community can be free medicine. We, have, we know that there is social contagion. We know that the lifestyle patterns that we exhibit are completely influenced by the circle around us. I believe that it's three degrees of separation that can be impacted with your lifestyle patterns, your weight, your mental health. All of that is impacted by the people around you. And so I definitely feel that this is important, and I feel I definitely can resonate with that. But I do want to bring it back that you do have a personal story that includes abuse, ne neglect, and trauma. That can be really difficult to share for all of us. And I think it might be helpful for us to explore the benefits of having a safe space with trusted people in the process of exploring that and, as you said, processing and looking back to see how far you've come and where you're going and to create that purpose, right? So can maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we can talk about that. So in the book, I talk about a moment in my life where I was at the bottom. I was 19 years old. 
I had just been in a baseball accident at Hartford Community College, an accident so severe that they sent a helicopter in to take me off the field. I went to the hospital. My baseball career was over. Here I had come from the bottom. I had fought my way up to make a college baseball team. Wow, I did it. And it was a long fly ball, as they say on TV, and I gave everything I have. Because in life, all it takes is all you got. And I took off running. I have it. And I jumped. And another player knocked me down. And the pain that shot through, in my mind, it's over. All of it's over. And I'm sitting in the hospital, University of Maryland shock trauma, and I'm looking at these people, wheeled past, and I'm the lucky one. I will never forget there was an individual that was being rolled in, and the sheet was slightly uncovered, and it had been a bullet hole to the side of the head. And here I am, feeling bad for myself that I got to take a helicopter ride. Well, what happened next was 32 days of painkillers. The bruising, the swelling, the pain, the embarrassment, the shame. I'm not on the baseball team anymore. My coach had said, get him off the field. I'm telling the fellas I'm not that tough. For me, it was hard. 32 days, two days before the big moment, I get a phone call from my sister. She's currently at this point in rehab in Nevada. And she says, hey, Dustin, how you doing? I'm not doing too well. Well, well what are you taking for the pain? They got me on painkillers. You need to flush that down the toilet immediately. When you see what happened to our family, I'm in rehab. Flush it down. And tell me about the depression. It's getting worse. Does anybody know? No, I don't tell anybody. It's shame and embarrassment. I had everything going for me. See, what happens when, when you show people the outside, they don't know what's on the inside. And here I was in my basement 32 days, 32 days at the end for me of everything. I lost it all that day. And 32 days, I'm in my basement, and I'm flipping through some old letters that my father had written. And I stop, and then I realize, wow, I never got the help I needed. I never got to talk to somebody. I never got to, to tell somebody, this is what I've locked inside. And so I wrote a letter. And there was a time where the song had just come out by Eminem called the Haley Song. It was Haley Song. And it said, sitting, sitting back or looking out the window, watching the world pass me, pass me by, thinking there's nothing left to live for, wishing I would die. The world thinks I'm crazy, oh, so crazy. I act like, don't phase me, but inside it drives me crazy. And that song played in my head over and over and over. And it was as if Eminem himself wrote that song because he knew that Dustin Roper, now Dustin Plantholt, my biological name was Dustin Roper. I changed my name at age 18. I was given a stack of papers. Now here I am, my identity has changed. And see, trauma happens like that. These moments in your life that everything adds up and it metastasizes. And so for me in this day, I start to write this letter. And I walk upstairs to my mother and my stepfather. I say, I need to go to the hospital. What's wrong? I'm really depressed. And I don't want to live anymore. I felt at that point there was nothing else to live for. And so I read them the letter. 
my mother said, are you sure? And my stepfather's sure. And I recognize they want to make sure this is a real moment of not just somebody who's emotional. And, but they drove me that night to Franklin Square Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And for the next three days, I wasn't put on medication. I wouldn't take it. I got a copy of my psych report. And even I was surprised back then. I said to them, all I want to do is talk. I just want to talk. And for three days, I told him everything. I told him about this memory of this man, Pastor Ed Lockmiller, but I didn't know his name. He was this pastor at the time of Hispanic church. That's all I remembered as a little boy, that my sister and I would go over to his church. We would take this walk from our driveway in Rainbow. This little four-year-old would hold her two-year-old brother's hand and now a five-year-old holding her three-year-old brother's hand. And we were hungry. Because when my father would leave, the one thing he wouldn't think about is, well, what kind of food do we need to put in the house? Go to Wegmans or go to Giant or go to Safeway. And this happens right now all around the world where parents are distracted. That parents don't even see the needs of their own children. And in this particular house, you did not want to drink the water. Robbie didn't drink the water. So Tennille and Dustin, the older sister Tennille, don't drink that water. And so we, we drank dad's beer. And when we were hungry, when Robbie wasn't around, we'd either steal from the local mini-mart or we'd head over to Pastor Ed's church. And Pastor Ed, to him, it was just, why wouldn't you do this? And he let two dirty, grubby little kids into his church, back to his food pantry, and gave us enough food for the day. You know why? Because he knew these two little people would not be able to carry bags of food. And he'd feed us, and he'd pray over us, and he took that time to get to know us, this relationship. And so for me, when we look at where we are, you have to look at where you've been. And in that day, those three days that I spent in Franklin Square, I got to know exactly where I've been. I came out stronger. And on my report, there was an interesting note. And it said because of the religious views of the family, that it's likely he won't get the treatment he needs going forward. And that to me is why. Why do we live in a world where we cannot blend science and a personal relationship with God? Why can't we find this way to blend them together? And so, looking at where you are is where you've been. I think that's a very, very powerful story you just shared with us, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. I definitely from my own personal experience, have felt the same. And I think that God has brought me to a place, God, the collective, whatever you would like to call it, has brought me to a place where I'm very, very lucky and I'm blessed because I'm able to do research that does blend spirituality and biological mechanisms to look at these outcomes. But I wanted to touch upon when you were describing yourself, you kind of spoke about emotionality in kind of a negative light. And I think that that's a societal and cultural norm that kind of sh shuts us down whenever we talk about our emotions and share our experiences because it's just so painful. It's painful not to just express them, but to hear it from another person. So when you access these painful memories and emotions and trauma, they can be pretty intense. So events that occurred decades ago can flood back as very strong, painful memories. So 
in response to this, can you please express to us what are some of the healthy strategies that you found helpful in dealing with these situations? Helpful strategies. I, I've been blessed. I always have a strong core of people to rely on. I call it my Sherpas, my mentors, the people that, quite frankly, know more than me, that will look at it in a way that, well, Dustin, you got to take yourself out of the picture and you got to put somebody else in. Years ago, mentor of mine, uh, John Greif, John gave me some advice. It is what it is. And then he also said something else. The only person you will ever have control over in life is yourself. And for years, he said it over and over. For 11 years, he told me the same thing. And one day it finally hit me that it's only a tug of war if both pick up the rope. That if you can only control yourself and your responses, the only thing you can control is your own lane. I can stay in my lane. Look behind you and go in reverse. How many people have been in your way? How many people did you cross over into their lane? For me, it was getting to know the good and more, more importantly for me, getting to know the bad. The things that held me back. I was a 20-year-old kid. I got picked up by a modeling agency. I was living in New York City. I also had an apartment in South Beach, Miami. It was also overwhelming. Here I was, this kid that started at the bottom. Now people are saying they think I got a special look. And I go into the big city, my mother brings me, and we visit all these different modeling agencies. And I get signed by one agency, at the time it was called uh, Wanted, uh, Modeling uh, Management. And now I was welcomed into this world that I'll call Sodom and Gomorrah. A world that when you're exposed to the world, what are you gonna do when no one's there? What are you gonna do when no one's looking? And at that time in my life, 19, I left Shepherd Pratt, three days. Less than a year later, I'm now in New York. I didn't have the Sherpas yet. I didn't have those role models to come into my life. Those role models to help me to say, you're gonna go out to a place and because of where you've been, you're gonna be the first one that's gonna fall for it. And so I went, I talked to my sister before I went out to New York and she told me, brother, stay away from it. Stay away from the drugs, don't touch it. And night after night in New York City, the temptation was too much. And I went to a party one night with a friend of mine, uh, Jax, another guy in Dex, and a uh, lady by the name of Laura. And we went out, and it was an entire night of partying. I don't remember how I got back to the apartment. My roommate was waiting for me. My roommate at the time was an actor on Broadway. And he was so disappointed with me, so angry. How could you? Well, why? What's wrong? Where have you been? I've been worrying all night. When you look back on your story, it took me years to say, Jace was there the whole time. My roommate that was introduced to me through a friend at the gym, that Jace was saying, what are you doing? Come home now. I had a little blow up mattress next to him on the side. It was a small studio in the lower west side of New York City. And that's what happens in life when you do not have people around you to keep you from falling. When you have the wrong community. When you have the wrong community. And the community can come in many different forms. A community can be one that you build over time. And I look at the team that's coming to Life's Tough, and I tell you, I feel so blessed. And I see what's happening with Life's Tough, that everyone has a story. One singular experience cannot be discounted. And Pastor Ed, I wanna ask you, what you've seen over your course 
of years of ministry and counseling people, when you see the weak ones and you see the strong ones, what makes them strong? What are the, what are the things that you see? What's the community around them? Well, I think um, one of the biggest things that make a person strong is the ability to not focus on themselves and realize that there's a greater purpose in what they can give to others. And by doing that, you, first of all, take your eyes off of how poor you're, you're doing. And sometimes we think we're in a terrible spot. We're actually in a better spot than most any other person. And I think one of the greatest things that makes a person strong is his ability to be able to say, God's given me these bad things in my life in order to be a, a purpose for somebody else. And also to teach me that I need others. I, I need God in my life. I need some direction. I need, I need it's just not me. It, it's, it's, it's more than me. And in order to be strong, I have to go ahead and allow these things to take place and look at the positive part of it instead of the negative part of it. So Pastor Ed, right now, you, you live in Philadelphia, just outside of Philadelphia. If some of our audience at some point want to be able to reach out to you in your ministry, how would they do that? Um, they could probably get, I'd be glad to give the information here and they could get to, you, get to me from there. I, I don't feel comfortable giving that information on the air. Understood. Okay. Yeah, we'll get the information over to uh, Melinda and we'll put it on the site. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective, Pastor Ed. I think that what we're really talking about here is these resilience factors and these strategies for resilience that keep coming up in your story. It seems like you faced a lot of what people would, what other people would deem as failures. How do you get past what other people would see as failures in life? So failures to me are merely things that happen along the way where you have to figure out a way around them. And what might be a failure today might be a success tomorrow. You look at the invention of the light bulb. How many times did that light bulb have to be created before that light bulb was finally ready? You look at your journey in life. How many times did you have to fall down? And I'm looking at my hands right now, it's a nervous tick. I always touch some calluses on my hand. Over how many years did I have to touch weights and, and barbells for these calluses to grow where my hands started to get stronger? That the skin around it started to grow thicker to say, We've got you. And so that's how I see problems, is that what are you gonna do now? I see it as the fuel to drive you, the fuel that should keep you going faster than ever before. It's the inertia that keeps you going. I've asked some people in life, some of the most successful people, how'd you do it? And then I heard one day somebody by the name of Warren Buffett, and he was asked the same question. He said, I put people around me smarter than me. That's how I built what I built. And to me, that is the goal. That is the legacy that all of us should leave behind, is that when you're a part of the community, when you're part of this world, then you must leave an impact. What impact are you leaving behind? And if you do have a story, then more importantly, use your story. So um, what, what you just expressed to me kind of reminds me of what I've been taught in meditation, which is all of us think that we suck at meditation or that we're not really good at it or good at controlling our attention and breathing. And I think that it's really important that when we're trying to do these things, the lesson that I get from that is you try to go back to the breath. And one meditation leader taught me that it's not about the times that you're able to control your attention for the entire time. It's whenever you're able to bring yourself back to your purpose that's the true success and that's what you learn from and that's kind of what I got from your story so thank you. So for many people whose stories include trauma, abuse, or neglect, there are people who would rather keep silent and who would try to keep the story from coming out. 
Sometimes they outright deny the truth to protect their own reputation or to avoid facing the past. Can we talk a little bit about how individuals who are ready to share their story can handle that? Boy, you have to have a strong foundation. You've got to build people around you, put people around you to keep you from falling. Because one of the most painful things for me of learning where I've come from, well, you got to live it again. You go through your journey. And so the foundation around you is more important. That if you're going through something right now, if you're being sexually abused, if you're being beaten by a spouse, if you're going through depression, if you have worry and anxiety, every single person out there listening has something they've locked inside, something dark, something deep. Ask yourself, isn't it time to be free of it, to live in the light? How do we become resilient? We have to learn from our mistakes. Before we continue, I'd like to again thank our sponsor, Western Limited, the premier investigation firm for the Western United States. Based in California, Western Limited has the expertise, experience, and resources of a large company, yet still provides the attentive, customized service that its customers appreciate. Call 866-435-0942 to get started. Western Limited handles surveillance, obtains recorded statements, does background checks, locates records, and even has a special investigations unit. Again, call 866-435-0942 for a consultation or check westernlimited.com online. Western Limited Investigations are professional, discreet, and dedicated to meeting your objectives. I know I've used Western Limited myself. They secured for me thousands of files. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. In addition, the first 50 subscribers to our show will receive a free gift from them. Thank you, Western Limited. So what I love about the Life's Tough community is that we're sharing stories and learning from one another. As you said, when we go through trauma, abuse, or neglect, we tend to feel alone. And this feeling of isolation and loneliness is what causes a lot of mental health issues and what can lead some to harm themselves through drug abuse or unhealthy relationships or even physically harming themselves. So in upcoming episodes of our podcast, we have some really exciting guests who are going to share their experiences and offer their encouraging encouragement for becoming more resilient. Dustin, why do you think it's so valuable to hear from other people what they've learned from overcoming adversity? It lets you know you're not alone, that you're not the only one. You know, something I talk about in the book is spare the rod, spoil the child. That there is a mentality and a philosophy and while some would say it's absolutely the way you administer punishment to a child, another group says you're merely creating trauma. You're breaking trust. And so how do you find a way to correct a child without creating future trauma? What happens when you're that child where you've been spanked? Trust is broken. What happens when you're now afraid of your parents? A fear of them, not a love. There are people out there in this world that some of the worst atrocities I've ever heard, I hear their stories. And it makes me think that mine is not so bad in comparison. I teach at a number, I speak at a number of events around the country on foster care or child welfare or trauma. And I heard a story of a young girl that her family couldn't afford her. So they put her out in the street. And this young girl did find a home, but it was with bad people. And this young girl then became trafficked around to the other men and the other men. And then one day, a Christian organization came along and offered her a way out. They took the risk, as Pastor Ed did. They knew the cost or consequence 
could be greater than the decision. And yet this young girl now, she lives just outside of Philadelphia. That to me is so important that when you share your story, you can encourage somebody else that is going through the same thing. As I learned from me with this memoir, with this book, that it wasn't about me, that I can now relate to people on my weaknesses. That someone says you're crazy because at the age of 19, I'm 35 now, at the age of 19, I hit a wall. I hit a wall and said, I need help. Does that forever now make you a bad person? Does that forever shame you for all eternity? This person's crazy. How many people right now should check themselves in to go talk to somebody? I lost my sister in 2014. What happens when you break? Who's there to lean on? And that's why it's so important that when you are going through it, all you have to do is open your eyes and there's a community all around you. There are pastor eds on every corner. There's Dr. Olga's. They're just waiting to give you advice and they're not perfect and they don't swear to be perfect. But you know, just that one day, they may be that one person that comes into your life that touches you and they don't know why. They don't know what will happen. They just know, I have to. I agree and I think that that first step is to express what you're going through. Pastor Ed, do you have something to say about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that happens <clears throat> when, a, <clears throat> excuse me, when a person is quiet and doesn't share their story, it's like having a, it's like having a needle in your arm, and you can't get it out. But until you have, until you share that story and say, "I need help," it's going to stay there. And when we don't share a story, it just builds up more and more within our life, and it just gets worse. So by sharing our story and giving another person an opportunity to give us input that gives us an opportunity to get that pain out and get it taken care of. I agree, and I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we try to put on a facade and pretend like everything's right. okay because right. the problem just gets so much worse to a point that we create this reality to ourselves that it's an unfixable issue, that no one can help us and that we're completely alone when the true reality is that that's really not the case. So over the course of this podcast, we're planning to share more of your personal story, Dustin, and some of the lessons you've learned and ways that you've used to become stronger. And we're going to have guests who share their stories as well as their strategies for helping and healing others. I want to take a few minutes before we wrap up here for you to share the part of your story that really motivated you towards this mission and your inspiration. Your sister, Tanil, was an amazing and positive influence in your life. She was your protector, your comforter, your friend. She isn't here with us anymore, but she continues to be your inspiration. And I think it would be fitting now, if you don't mind, to share a little bit about her with our audience, our new community of friends, to honor her and to encourage us all. Tanil Lemoyne Roper, born, born January 8, 1981. She became my mother in around January 1985. In September 1985, she became my full-time mother. My sister showed me a world, a world where magic existed. She created for me a world where I didn't see the bad. I didn't see the violence. We were just two young children playing on the rocks outside of our home because nothing would grow on the ground. And we'd sit on these rocks and we would wait for either our dad to arrive or wait for our mother to return. These two young kids created this world that we heard, we saw, the, we saw the trees move. It became magic. 
and the rocks would talk to you. She became to me the toughest person I've ever known. I will never be as tough as Tennille. For Tennille, she stepped up when the times were toughest. She st stood down to the bullies. She lift up the downtrodden. She never gave up. When I was taken from her, from foster care, we had been in foster care now for about seven months and I was wetting the bed a lot. And my sister had to keep probably making excuses as the foster care report went. And she keeps saying, he didn't do anything wrong. And so now Tennille is trying to figure out a way, how do I keep my family together? She is a seven-year-old girl. I am now five. We have spent both nearly two years at this point in foster care, waiting for a family member to come pick us up. And my sister would still create this magic. We would have games. The resilient people, they are all around you. They could be in your family. They can be in your neighborhood. And when she passed away, I finally saw it. And sometimes that's what it takes that the ones who took the most beatings in their life, the one who took the most shots, had the worst upbringing, had nothing handed to them, would be the one to me to say, I wish I could have your heart. When we left Rainbow, California, for us, it was a new beginning. Here I am, five and a half years old. My sister's eight. She arrives in Baltimore, Maryland, one month before I do, into this new world, this new land into the new rules. There were no rules in my life at that time. As Robbie would say, look, he's a kid being a kid. And now what happens when children are taken from one home into another? What happens when parents fight over children? What happens when parents take children from the other parent? The kids are stuck in the middle. I was talking to a dear friend of mine earlier, Oren, who was telling me the story about this tug of war, that he remembers this moment in his life where his parents were fighting over him. That one was grabbing him from the right and the other was grabbing him from the left, and he's in the middle saying, I just want it to stop. I just want you to love each other again. I just want you to like each other. And Oren had to make a decision. Who's gonna be the one to go to? And the other one's probably gonna be angry with me. And that was the road I lived in at the time. What happens when a child wants to get to know their parent and they are not allowed? My father, Robbie, was sentenced to prison. He was in for nearly 16 years of my life. He left me in December 1988. Nearly three and a half years after my mother had left the family. Here I am now, this little boy, getting to know a stranger. And I'm excited. What little kid wouldn't be excited? I get to go on an airplane? I'm just a little boy. And my sister was there waiting for me at BWI Airport. I remember coming off. At that time, you were actually allowed to, everyone was allowed to walk there. There might have been, I don't know, 20 people, 30 people. And I remember my sister looking at me. And I come up to her, and I have her now, and I felt safe. Who in your life represents safety for you? Who do you run to when it's the darkest times and it's the darkest hour in your life? Who is that person? And if you do not have them, you will not survive. You will not make it on this journey. You will fall and you will collapse. Have that sounding board. There are people right now in churches, in communities, 
in your life, at your work, where you can say, I'm going to tell you, but I need your opinion. I remember Pastor Ed was telling me that at the time when I was in foster care, uh, Robbie had been uh, released. He was on probation. And the state still wouldn't give custody to him. The state was still searching for the mother. And yet Robbie now goes to Pastor Ed and assumes Pastor Ed's going to take my side. And so he calls Pastor Ed for a character reference. Pastor Ed said, sure, I'll go with you. Robbie's all proud. All right, I'm going to have my pastor with me. He's, he's going to vouch for me. And Pastor Ed tells the story. And Pastor Ed, would you share with us that day what happened when Robbie Roper brings you? Well, he, he took me to the court, and the, the court asked me to come up in front of the court to uh, just give a reference, you know, what I think the, the lawyer would say, what do you think about this, what do you think about that? And I told Robbie beforehand, I'm just going to be honest. And afterwards, he says to me on the side, he says, you didn't do very well for me. I said, Robbie, I told you I was going to be honest with whatever they asked me. And he just was always surprised. He was really surprised I, that I was honest, I guess, or that I had looked at him from the perspective and saw him in that, in that light. But um, it was interesting. It would have been very interesting. And for Robbie, when I asked him that same question, or I threw it at him and said, here's what Pastor Ed said. I said, weren't you angry with him? No. No, he wasn't. Why no. would I be angry with him? I said, but he didn't agree with you. He said, well, he wasn't supposed to agree with me. He's supposed to give his opinion. He gave his opinion. Robbie Roper respected Pastor Ed Lockmiller. He went to him. He even allowed Ed to give him counseling. He and my mother were counseling with Pastor Ed. This is a man that Robbie trusted. When we went into foster care, Pastor Ed was asked to take the kids. He didn't flinch. The state said, we can't do that. You're not a licensed social care worker. So where we are right now in life, where you are in your journey, I ask you, who is your Pastor Ed? Take away the title. Who is your Ed? Who is your, who is your guide? Who is the Sherpa in your life? Who is the person when your darkest days? And you will have them. 2016. Life was going good for me. What I didn't realize was that, boy, take heed lest you fall, as the old saying goes. And then all of a sudden overnight, it seems like my life had gotten flipped upside down. I had made a decision to sell a company. At the same time, another company that I had agreed to go work with to lead sales, marketing, and strategy was being put out of business. The fear that hit my stomach, the fear in my chest, everywhere and everything I have done is for nothing. I was depressed. My wife that night had a meeting to go to, or had a, a party to go to. I remember telling her I was going to stay home. And I sat in my bed, next to the bed, and I thought, what's the point? What's the purpose of this? Why would I continue to feel this pain? This pain of being left behind, this pain of coming into this home where they've got a new child? The confusion of a little boy saying, for nearly two years, the states told me I'm really broken. They told me I'm a bad influence on the other kids. They bring me to therapy every week, and they tell me my, my mother can't be found. And, and well, my dad, he's dysfunctional. And my dad was abusive, not towards me, but towards my mother. I didn't see it, but I did see the reports. And Robbie, when I asked him, did you ever hit my mother? Yeah, from time to time I did. 
I said, was this ongoing continuous? No. Doesn't make it right when I did it, though, but it wasn't. At the end of your life, or where you are in your life right now, ask yourself, who have you hurt along the way? Who needs the most grace? And here I was on the floor feeling bad for myself. I thought of my sister. What would Tennille say? She had died two years earlier, and that had hit me like a brick. I lost my sister. I never really grieved for her. I did. I was angry. I was sad. I was crying. It was a different kind of grief that had not happened, and that was, I lost the toughest person I ever knew. That she can be taken from me? Then I can lose everything tomorrow. And then, what am I going to do with this now? Where will my journey go from here? What will I do with it? And who's right behind me to hold me from falling? That is the mission of lifestuff.com, is that everyone has a story, everyone has a pain. My mother had to see her mother get put into a health mental institution. This poor child had to watch her mother be taken from her and being thrown into dysfunction. And my father, Robbie, at age 14, Robbie was sitting at the kitchen table his father, Bob, my grandfather, passed away in August this past year. And Bob comes in and says to Cheryl, my grandmother, adopted grandmother, Cheryl's uh, his, uh, stepmom, and says to Cheryl, if you open your mouth one more time, I'm going to close it for you. When I interviewed somebody else about it, they said his words were, I'm going to break your jaw. And she said something, I don't know what the comment was, no one really does, did know what was said at the time. But my grandfather Bob struck this woman that day. And sure enough, from what I've been told by the people who were there, it broke her jaw. My father attacked his father. My grandfather was a giant. He was a wrestler in college. Robbie, he was a scrapper. He could box a little bit. He stood up that day and said, enough. He and his dad, over the next five minutes, they fought fist to fist, face to face. They were wrestling in the front yard. And as Robbie said, I was just a 14-year-old boy trying to keep my dad from hitting my mom. And now my dad, a professional wrestler, knows how to take me down and starts pounding on me. And you wonder why violence begets violence. And we wonder why in this society, where'd you come from? Where'd your grandparents come from? Where did their great-grandparents come from? What is your story? Have you checked your own DNA? Have you sent out for a kit to just finally figure out, I am not American Indian? I was told the rumors, the stories, we're American Indian. Well, they weren't substantiated. 70 plus percent of me is English. Another 30% of me is Irish. The other 10% is somewhere else around the area, in France and in Finland. Wow. My ancestors, how many of them did this to their families? How many of them taught this through the generations that this is acceptable? We do this. We hit kids. We hit kids to correct them. That is just a little tap to take a child and put that child over your knee. And you take a belt. 
that a grown-up makes a decision right now that will forever impact this child's life, that this child will never forget this moment, that is happening right now everywhere around this world. And so for to me, when I see my sister, when I think back as this girl, this young girl, I see beauty. There was a song that came out, it's called uh, Beauty and Ashes by Celine Dion. And the whole premise of the song is that out of ashes comes beauty. That for me is the mission of life's tough, that through the ashes, through the pain, through everything that's been burned around you, through scorched earth from Rainbow, California, you couldn't grow daisies there in my yard. You couldn't grow roses. You could grow avocados. That from beauty came from ashes. The people here today and the people listening in mean more to me than I think they'll ever see the, that I mean to myself. I think what you're really speaking to is breaking that cycle of trauma. I know that for myself, I also went through a really traumatic childhood with physical abuse. And I remember the one time where my life was hanging in the balance was because I couldn't find, I think it was a can opener. And so these distortions of reality that adults put in their minds were given by previous generations, as you mentioned. So I think that for you and me, Dustin, and for all of us, life's journey is about healing and growing and building healthy relationships to become stronger and to break this cycle of trauma. So I want to invite our listeners into that relationship so they can be a part of the Life's Tough community. We really want to connect because that is truly what a community is and the importance of this. So please follow the, we the website lifestuff.com. You can message or email us through those sites as well. Send us questions that we might be able to use for our future shows or you can share your personal stories as well. At Life's Tough, we're working hard to provide resources on a variety of topics. And Dustin, I know I'm excited to share with the audience about everything that we've, we're going to be coming up with and all of our new guests and all of this new material that we're creating so that, so that we can provide a community of support and strength and resilience. So anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up today? Uh, yeah, some closing remarks. I just want to thank everyone for coming in. Thank Pastor Ed. I'd like to thank all of those that are listening, all the future hearts that are listening. For us, for me, when you look back on your life, what legacy will you leave behind? The stories are as varied as the people who tell them. Each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the person who lived it, that story is just as devastating as any other. I ask you to use your story to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestuff.com, L-I-F-E-S-T-O-U-G-H.com, and be sure to join us every week, same time, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion 
Remember, everyone has a story. Life's tough. You can be tougher. Finally, I'd like to thank Western Limited, the premier name for discreet, confidential, and results-oriented investigations throughout the Western United States. Western Limited is the company I use. I can heartily recommend them. Pastor Ed is here today because of their research. Call 866-435-0942. That's 866-435-0942. And tell them Life's Tough sent you. Pastor Ed, any closing remarks on your side? Well, obviously, life is tough. And uh, I think God wants to use that in each of our lives to make us stronger, as you've already stated. And I think he wants us to use that in our lives to be able to share with others in order to grow and to help them find solutions. Definitely. I would also like to close in saying that within community, we do have that word unity. And in finding that togetherness, we can really overcome and break these trauma cycles to live fuller, healthier lives. So I thank you all for joining us today. Pastor Ed? Yep. So from here, you're going to be heading back. And I hope that you will continue on hearing this journey. Your name will be mentioned quite a few times along the journey. Next week, tune in as we have an upcoming guest, the name of Chance Kelly actor Chance Kelly and boxer Chance Kelly. Additional future guests will include Michael Harrison and some other special guests that not to name just yet. I thank all of you from my heart to yours from the Elston Carlisle studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Life's tough. You can be tougher. <laughs>